0: Uh, We are in uh, Titus again, one more time. I have one more message that I want to preach out of this book. We've been going through the pastoral epistles on Sunday evenings. We've uh, now kind of gone through Titus. We've preached through the whole, the whole letter, essentially, sort of uh, Lord, uh, mechanically, I guess you could say. And then we've gone back a little bit and preached a couple messages from it. And tonight I want to preach one more from chapter 3. And then uh, next week we'll get into, or the week after following, uh, we will get into Second Timothy uh, to finish out this series. But in Titus 3, I think there's a really fascinating passage I want to look at tonight. Um, But, you know, uh, if you go into a bookstore, you're going to find a a genre of books that I haven't really delved into very much uh, called the the autobiography section, which is... As it sounds, it's the person writing their own story, which is a really fascinating thing to me. If someone's going to sit down and they're going to say, I'm going to write my life story, I think they have to make a few assumptions. First of all, they have to uh, assume that their story is worth reiterating and telling. They have to assume that you want to read what has happened to them. Um, which I think is, for some, I think this is a self-evident thing, that you want to read. Like The most famous, at least for me, is Charles Spurgeon's autobiography, which he sat down and wrote about his life. And if you know Spurgeon and all the things that he was involved in, you know that that was, must be a really fascinating read to read his thoughts uh, as he was going through the course of his life. I think some people, though, it's if they write down their autobiography, it's nothing but self-interest. Like, I I seriously doubt anyone's going to want to read mine. I don't plan on writing one. But if I ever were to, uh, I don't know if anyone's going to want to read it. But I think the other thing, that if someone's going to sit down and write their autobiography, they have to reckon with both the good events in their life and the bad events. And they have to make sure that they are presenting them in in the appropriate light. They have to sort of get another person's view of it. If you're reading an autobiography and every single negative thing that happens make them appear as if they're the victim, then you know exactly from what perspective they're writing. It's writing from just theirs. They're not assuming the other person's point of view or anything like that. But I think a good memoir or a good autobiography will present, uh, like any good piece of history we might say, will just present this is what happened. Without trying to convince you to believe a certain bias or anything like that, it just tells you this is what it is. This is what happened. Here's these events, and I think, um, in some ways, as we've talked about before in here, um, that's what makes the Bible interesting to me as a piece of literature. It doesn't it doesn't make excuses for its more sort of grim and grimy parts. It just here's what happened. If you want to know about a scene where a guy stabs another guy, you can read all about that. If you want to read about this person having an affair with this person and then covering it up with a murder, you can read about that. It doesn't try and cover up the bad stuff. It just is, here's what happened. And again, as I've said before, that's how you know it's, it's not a man-made book. Because we would hide those parts Except when you come to the New Testament, Matthew's like, bam, here it is. Here's all the bad stuff. Here's Jesus' family. It's full of a lot of messed up people. And it doesn't try and cover any of that up. It just presents it to you. And I think in a similar sort of way, this is is what Paul is doing here in Titus. He's presenting, he's just laying out, here's the facts. Here's uh, sort of the Christian's autobiography, we could say. And here's what it looks like. And he doesn't try and cover up the bad parts. He doesn't try and make it sound better. He doesn't make it try and uh, uh, tweak it to where it, it appears nicer. He just presents sort of the Christian's autobiography, I might say. And I think he does that here in Titus 3. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. Let me just read these verses, and then I have another question I'd like to ask. So let me read these verses. Uh, Titus 3, verse 3. Paul is writing. He says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So he is relating this this sort of uh, autobiography of the Christian and he's telling you what they were what they used to be like and now what they are and so forth. And he's sort of giving the testimony of salvation of these Christians here at this church. Have you, let me ask you this. You don't have to uh, admit to any of these questions I'll ask you, but you can just kind of answer them in your head. Um, have you ever listened to a person's testimony of salvation and you were just, wow, they have an amazing story. You're just uh, completely just struck. By how God brought them from maybe perhaps the pit of this addiction. Or perhaps brought them out of this false religion or whatever. Out of this uh, terrible relationship. And he brought them out of that and he saved them. And now he's using them to further the truth of the gospel. I've been in in situations like that where you're hearing that story and we are rightly amazed and moved by those stories, I think. They are meant to uh, bring us to that point. Uh, I'll admit to you, though, I think sometimes we can can kind of like idolize those stories. In fact, uh, I had someone talk to me about that where it's almost as if we want a story like that. I wish I had a really good story. I wish my testimony was as emotional as that one. I wish I had something bad in my life that I could say, look at what God brought me from. You don't have to admit to me, but have you ever thought that? In like the back of your mind, you're like, oh, I shouldn't think that. I mean, I'll admit it because I'm up here. I've thought that before. Oh, man, I wish, I wish my story was like that. I wish, I wish my testimony was that <laughs> resonant, that emotional. And I think that, that kind of just reveals how self-interested we are. How conceited we can be at times. Or we can even be listening to someone's testimony. And it could be a platform for uh, our self-righteousness, our self-interest. But I think it also happens the other way too. When you're listening to a testimony. And have you ever thought this? You don't have to admit it or raise your hand. But have you ever heard a grimy story like that? And you're like, man... I'm glad that's not me. Have you ever thought that? I've thought that too. Man, I'm I'm glad I wasn't like that. I mean, that guy, I think either way, if you're jealous of someone's testimony, I mean, God forbid, or if you're glad that that person, or that you aren't like that person, both cases, I think, reveal how much, you don't realize how much grace you've been given. Both scenarios reveal that you don't have a firm grasp of the grace of God that has saved you, that should amaze you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound we sing it so often that I think we can not stop and be like, wow, that is amazing. That he did save a wretch like me. I think about this because... For a long time, uh, I didn't think that I had, you know, one of those really amazing testimonies. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was around Christian family members and Christian friends. I, you, you maybe have heard my testimony before, but both my dad and my granddad are pastors. I have always grown up in church. I like to say that Sunday school is in my DNA. It's just part of who I am. I've been in church since I was a couple weeks old. It's just part of me. And yet, I didn't get saved until I was 16 years old when I reluctantly went to a summer camp, believe it or not. And I was saved there at, at 16. And it doesn't, it wasn't, I, I don't have like this story where God brought me out of some sort of addiction or uh, some serious sort of weight or anything like that. I was, I, I knew the Bible, I knew it. I preached before I was saved. <laughs> That's how well I could sound like a Christian. But I would say this, that my story, maybe that's familiar with you. Maybe you got saved when you were like five or four. Or maybe you got saved when you were in Sunday school or something like that. Your story of salvation is no less miraculous than the heroin addict who comes in here and preaches the gospel. It's the same amount of miracle from both people. The person who grew up in church and the person who was saved from the streets. Why? Because notwithstanding the circumstances in which we find ourselves, grace has rescued all of us, has pulled all of us from the brink of eternal death. And that's what we have to realize when we realize the truth and the crux of the gospel, that we were on the brink of eternal damnation and grace pulled us out. Jesus pulled us out of that by His ransom, by His sacrifice for us. That, to me, is what will have a sort of a recover. You want to recover your amazement of grace. This is what I think you have to lean into. The fact that yes, that was me. I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to recover this church's. He's inspiring them yes to good works as we've seen. He's trying to show the Cretan Christians here that yes, they are to act and per- live a certain way, but it all comes back to this. It comes back to the God who has rescued you, who has redeemed you as as we I think it's in it's in Jude where he says as as a as a brand from the furnace. I think that's Zechariah actually. But I think this is what he's talking about here that this story this sort of Christian's autobiography this is yours too and i think it will uh, that will come to light so in verse 3 i think we have paul is talking about here what we once were He talks about what we once were here in verse 3. Because look at it again. He says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He doesn't paint a pretty picture of this crowd, does he? He doesn't paint or describe a sort of people we would want to be around or we would want to be associated with. But even more so, what I think is fascinating, is that he is bluntly connecting this description with churchgoers. Remember who he's talking to? He's talking to Titus. He's talking to a pastor. And he's talking to Cretan Christians. That's why he can say, you were this way, but for the grace of God. This was you. You were foolish and disobedient. You were reckless. You were worldly. You lived for yourselves. This was you. Remember from which you have been saved from. Perhaps, as we've seen before, uh, this was more apparent for them. Because uh, if you go to verse 12 of chapter 1, you you can be reminded of the sort of reputation that the Cretans had. Which we might say was less than pleasant. (laughs) Maybe it was more easy for them to remember that from which they were saved. But even still the point remains this. That this description of these sinners is the description of you and me as well. This is what you once were. This is what you were saved from. We were foolish and disobedient and deceived. We were duped into thinking that we could save ourselves, that we could be just good enough to rule our lives better than the sovereign ruler himself. We were foolish enough to believe that. We were serving, as Paul elsewhere talks about, the old Adam that is in us, the old man, the old nature. We were deceived into thinking that we can be our own saviors. Or as he says, we were serving diverse lusts, lusts and pleasures, the things we wanted. We were enslaved to ourselves. As Paul says, and I think it's in Romans 6, slaves to sin. We were enslaved to it, we were in chains bondage to the desires and lusts, thinking about our own needs before any regard for others. This was us. And we were, as he closes there, we living in malice, in envy, hateful, and hating one another. Just steeped in anger, in vitriol, in our words and in our actions. And you see, whether you were saved in church or whether you were saved from off the streets, this describes you. This was you. This was your heart. This was uh, what your heart looked like. It was foolish and hateful of everything except for itself. Uh, Go to Romans 8 because there's a word that I want to uh, use here that Paul kind of sums this up. In another letter to the church at Rome, he says in verse 7 of chapter 8, he says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law, neither indeed can be. This word enmity, I think, is a good summation of what Paul is talking about. Why do our hearts look like this? Because our hearts are naturally at enmity with God. We are separated and we are in opposition to what all that exists in God himself. We are going our own way. We are rebellious. We are foolish. We are disobedient. Why? Because we are at enmity. At opposition to God. There's a vast chasm that separates us from God because of our sin. And here he says it's because we are at enmity. We are at war with God. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans, that we are his enemies. Suggestive of just that, all that bars us from living up to God's standard. Because we're rebellious. We're foolish. We're disobedient. As Isaiah 53 says, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And I think the hard part is, Coming to grips with the fact that this describes me. That this description of a sinner here in Titus 3. Of one who is foolish and disobedient and deceived. And serving just the lust and desires and pleasures. And one who is just constantly angry. Constantly living in malice. That this was me. It's, it might be difficult for you to think that way. Maybe it's because the only, like, the worst thing you've done is, like, steal a pack of gun from, like, wise or something like that. And, like, that's your bad thing. Like, me, I didn't, I, I didn't, I wasn't, like, a party or person. Like, that was, like, the best, the worst thing that I've done. <laughs> I grew up in church. Remember? Like, I hung around church people. I didn't have, quote, bad friends. My friends were Christians, quote unquote. I didn't do bad things. (laughs) It could be easy for me to see why does this apply to me. I don't need to be evangelized. That's why for 16 years I thought that I could live and just live in the heritage of faith that my mom and dad had. But you think as long as you have a weak view of your own sin, you will have a very, very weak view of the Christ who saved you from sin. As long as you have a small view of the sin from which you have been redeemed, you will have a very small view of the Jesus who died for you. You want to worship Jesus? Uh, Rightly, you want to worship him with all the gusto that's in you? (laughs) Think of the vastness, the enmity which existed between you and God, and think about the fact that Jesus took it all for you. A sinner. Whether you've been in church your whole life or whether you haven't, this is what Jesus has done. What you once were, Jesus died for it. He put it on the cross. He says he nailed it there in Colossians chapter 2. He nailed it there and the handwriting was upon that cross and he put it away. This is what he's done. This is the incredible sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. In fact, It was Alexander McLaren in one of his sermons on this passage. He says this. That the root cause of almost all the inadequate conceptions of Christ and his work. Which depart from the plain teaching of Christ in scripture. Lies here. That men do not recognize the fact of their bondage to sin. Excuse me. And wherever that recognition is weak. You will have maimed Christ. Christ. And you will have an impotent Christ. You want to have a maimed Christ? You want to have, in his words, a powerless Christ? Have an inadequate view of the sin from which you've been saved. Have a small view of all the wickedness and wretchedness that was in your heart. You want to love the gospel? You want to be enraptured by your own testimony and you want to rejoice at the testimonies of others? Think about the fact that this is the very thing that Jesus saved you from. He rescued you from the brink of eternal damnation. He brought you off of that uh, that edge and he made you one of his sons and daughters. All because of his sacrifice. I think sometimes we... Downplay our sin. We don't want to appear as bad. I'm glad I'm not like that person. Remember Luke 18? The the Pharisee and the publican? He says, Thank you, God, for not making me like that guy. I've done all these good things, and I'm glad that I'm not as bad as him. I think sometimes we do that in our own hearts. I confess to that too. We do that all the time. We minimize the thing. thank you that I'm not addicted to this or that. I'm just, I have my own little sins, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Yet, this is what Jesus has come to save us from. And such is why, again, we have the law. Such is why we have the brutal honesty of God's law. It's there, there, as it says in Romans 3.23, to show us just how short we've fallen from living up to it, from keeping it. I love that quote. When I think of Romans 3.23, I always think of that quote, that yes, we have all fallen short of the law, but that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. (laughs) And I think it's true. We know the verse, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but we compare how far we've all fallen short. I'm fallen on less short than you have (laughs) and the point of it all is to show us that as good as we think we're doing we've all failed that standard again I don't want to appear like a broken record but this chapter has been in my mind Matthew 5 again that's why we have it you think you're living up to it it's not just about not having affairs it's about not lusting it's not just about not killing it's about not getting angry When was the last time you were angry with someone in your family? Sometimes, I'll admit to you, it's like right before we come into church because Lydia is doing something that I think she should not be doing and she doesn't listen. And it just, I want her to obey. (laughs) Just obey. Just listen to me. (laughs) And yet, at that very moment, I'm failing that standard. I'm failing to live up to the law. And Jesus is pricking my heart saying, look, see, you need grace there too. And he's, it's there to show us what? Just how far we have failed this standard. That we think we're living up to it, we're not even close. This is what we have been saved from. This is the strictness of God's righteousness. It's there to show us that. And it's only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize and recognize that this is us, that's when we will rejoice in what God has done. When we realize what we once were, enemies. And yet God has rescued us. See, that's the amazing part. That, that despite all of that that describes us in verse 3, it doesn't stop God in his mission of redeeming us. Look at the next section. Look at verses 4 through 6. Because Paul has been talking about what what we once were. And now he talks about what we now are. Look at what he says. But after that... The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He's talked about what we once, what they once looked like, and now he's describing this is what you now are. This is what you can stand right now rejoicing and reveling in. This is what Jesus has done, signed, sealed, delivered for you. That in the middle of all of that wretchedness, that foolishness and disobedience and deception and lust, in the middle of all of that, what? The kindness and love of God appeared. The kindness and love of God appeared toward men. Again, as he's already reiterated in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, what is this talking about? It's talking about the incarnation. Again, you can see Paul, he is linking, as he's talked about elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the mystery of faith and godliness. It's the fact that God has descended from heaven to be with man. To take the place of man on the cross. He is the fullness of that kindness and love. In our savior Jesus Christ. This is where our story of salvation has to start. It always has to start here at the incarnation of Jesus Christ in our world. We aren't saved By anything that we have done. He says not according to the works of righteousness that we have done or that we have accomplished. But according to his mercy he saved us. All because he has appeared to all men. That man, Jesus Christ. The man who was God and who was man at the same time. This is what we rejoice in. This is why we can't just keep our sermons on the incarnation just at Christmas. Why? Because Paul is linking it to all of the Christian life. You want to rejoice in your testimony. Rejoice in the fact that God became like you in every single way yet without sin. So that he could die for your sin and so that he could give you his righteousness. What a glorious fact. What a glorious truth. That what we are now at this moment, wherein we stand, we stand justified. We stand, as he says in verse 7, that we are heirs with the Father. We are co-heirs with Christ. All because of what he has done, because of what Christ has done for us. He made us what we are now by becoming what we were. I love that verse. 2 Corinthians 5:21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. That he who knew no sin became sin. He didn't just feel the effects of it there. It says he became sin. He took on all of the world's sin. He became what we once were. He died in the place of those who were foolish and disobedient and lustful and deceived and were hateful and lived for their own pleasures. He became that person for us. Why? So that we could take the place of of him in glory. And live with him in glory. It's all because of his work for us. That's why we are what we are now. What we are now is because of Jesus. We are justified heirs with Jesus himself. H.A. Ironside, the great orator and preacher. He says, he, meaning Christ in grace, undertook our salvation. He, in infinite kindness, reached down to where we were. I love that. That he reached down with his hand, we might say. Right down, right where we were. In the midst of all of that wretchedness and sin. And he rescued us from it. That's the wonder of this whole thing. And this story as we are telling our testimonies. That if we are more left to be captivated and left in wonder... Of all the things that Jesus has saved us from, the more we will rejoice and celebrate that same Jesus. We will celebrate him in our own lives and we will celebrate him in the lives of others that look at that amazing God who saves all kinds of wretches. <laughs> he saves them all, and he brings them all home. What we once were, what we now are, and look at verses 78 because uh, seven and eight. Because he leans into here at the, at the end, quickly, what we will be. That being justified, he says, by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that thou affirm constantly. That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So this Christian's autobiography we could say he closes with a reminder of what we will be. He says they're heirs. We will be made we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, which again has to make you think of the inheritance that we will one day be given. Should make you think of the day when we don't have to have any more faith. Why? Because faith will be made sight. What we have hoped for and believed in our entire lives will be what is. One day there won't have to be any more faith. Because it will be reality. We will be with the Father and with the Son. And we will be in forever, blessed, everlasting communion with them. Faith will be no more. Our hope of eternal life will be reality. There's coming that day when we will no longer be separate from this God. We will be with him forever. That's your inheritance. That's what God gives you in the gospel. He gives you everlasting communion with himself. We don't have to look for him and search for him through the scriptures. You will have him in front of you. You'll have them face to face. As that song, uh, what's that song where it talks about uh, stepping on the shore and finding the air celestial and looking up and facing and finding it God's? One day that is going to be reality. That we will look up and find a face and it will be Jesus' face staring back at us, saying, Welcome home. Welcome to your inheritance. And what will, is the through line? What is sort of the thread? Is that it is all because of the grace of God that he has done this he saves us from what we were. And he makes us what we are. And he brings us to what one day will be. Because he is a good and gracious God. As it says, not according to our works. But according to his mercy. He has done this. He has sealed this in his spirit. And delivered us from all of this. This is the Christian's biography. Autobiography. If you want to write it down. You could just write down one word. (laughs) Grace be the shortest autobiography ever. But it'll also be one of the most full and captivating ones too. Because in that one word contains all of what we've talked about. It contains all of that. We can remember what we have been saved from. And what we have now been made right now in our present state. And what one day we will be. Because God is a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of righteousness. And he gives us that righteousness in grace. This is my story. This is my song as we sung. Guess what? This is your story too. Every person's story who has ever believed in Jesus Christ, they can read these verses and say, that was me. This is what I once was. This is what I now am. And this, by hope, this is what one day I will be. And whenever we hear a testimony, whenever we hear someone share their story of salvation, we can rejoice with them. Because one day we will be with them forever. (laughs) Because we have the same hope, the same God, the same Savior, who gives the same grace to all the same sinners. He's like, that is the type of God, that is the type of Savior we have. This was me this was you and thank god that he has saved all of us from this eternal death by dying for us let us pray